Good, thank you. I think most of you actually know me, but um, by way of introduction, uh, my name is Stephen, um, generally known as Stephen Jack. People do seem to have a problem of just calling me Stephen. Um, that comes from PJ. Um, I've actually had people coming up to me asking me what my surname is <laughs> because they think Stephen Jack is like John Paul or <laughs> it's uh, so it's Stephen Jack um, and uh, I'm originally from the UK. Uh, I moved to Zimbabwe uh, in uh, the year 2000. I uh, worked for a British charity there. Um, uh, met PJ in Zimbabwe and then uh, five years later when he was leaving to go to Johannesburg, uh, he invited my wife and I to join him and so we were part of a team that moved down to Joburg uh, to plant uh, to plant God First. Uh, God First um, really did start off with fairly hi Jenny, uh, fairly rapid growth um, and uh, it was quite a it was quite a story. Um, we started with twen 20 people moved in none of which were from Joburg. We were all uh, all new to the city. Um, we launched the church um, and the first year, by the end of the first year, we were up to about 130 of us. Um, we doubled again the next year to 260, and then the next year to 520, and again the year after. Um, and after five years, we were, uh, we were cresting around one and a half to 2,000 members, um, which was then when we started to go to a multi-site approach. Uh, and we started meeting in various locations around the city, and the church began to grow. I led one of the first multi-sites to, uh, to the north side of the city, God First Four Ways, um, and we took, uh, we took 60 people with us. Um, and again, the story was the first year we doubled and the second year we added the same amount. So we were up to about uh, 210, 220. Um, and at that point, um, pretty much the growth began to stop. Um, and uh, quite a lot, of, uh, a lot of plateau that went on in some of the sites, not all of them, and particularly in the one that I was leading. Um, and so there were great seasons of, of no growth and great seasons where we had to look at some soul searching and saying, why are we not seeing people saved and why are we not seeing people added to our church? And so many of the learnings that I've got um, come not out of the years of great success, um, uh, but actually out of the years of, of great famine, which actually caused us to look in inwardly. Um, just recently, uh, we... Uh, uh, Jubilee Church in Cape Town launched a second site in the city and Lex Lazidis who leads that asked for some of my time and he said please could you sit down and kind of coach me in some of the things that I need to do and recently I was in a forum where someone said what has been the key to the success of that church because it's just exploded and he said I spent a day with Stephen Jack and did everything I was told <laughs> um, which which is very complimentary, but simultaneously, our church was planting into Midrand, and Midrand is just north of us in the city. Um, we released about a fifth of our church and about a, a quarter of the funds, and we sowed our best people into that situation. Um, and uh, after three months, we had grown by two people. Um, and Jacques said, I did everything that Stephen Jack told me to do, um, and substantially nothing happened. Um, and again, through that process, we had to sit down and relook at it in terms of why is this church uh, not getting the kind of traction we, des we would expect. Um, and we, lear we learned a huge amount out of that whole process as well. And so that's kind of a bit of the story. You know, I'm not some kind of guru. And, and actually, when I told my elders that this was the subject um, I'd got to speak, one of the subjects I got to speak on this week, they said, well, when you've done the research and the teaching, please come back and implement some of it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't seem to have grown much in the last year at all. And so I, I think that a lot of that's a caveat to saying, you know, this, the, this subject in itself can be, I don't know how you feel about it. Um, some people will see it and just think, oh, that's great. I really want a part of that. Others will think, you know, what are we doing? I'm talking talk about growing churches numerically. Are we all about bums on seats? Is it just all about numbers? You know, what about values? What about mission? What about discipleship? What kind of church are we doing? You know, are we somehow idolizing some kind of mega church uh, situation? That's where the success is. And I, I do understand that. I think at times we can be a little bit numbers driven. Um, or actually success is about the amount of people without actually lifting the lid and seeing, well, how did we get there? How was that growth? How was it achieved? 
And are we really pushing back the gates of hell or are we just shifting Christians around the city? And so there is that kind of uh, uh, a connotation uh, to this particular talk. And so this, what I'm doing this afternoon is not necessarily looking at the type of church that you are growing. Um, I'm not particularly looking, um, you know, this is not an evangelism talk, which is saying we're only bothered about growing people who are getting saved. Um, uh, although I hope that will ha- this talk will help you in that area. Um, it's also not about, you know, how do we get to a mega church of over a thousand. Um, although if that's your goal, I hope this will help you as well. It's not even looking at the styles and the values of the type of church that you're trying to grow. I think that's down to you. Equally, it's not looking at growth at all costs. Uh, what it is, is examining very practical ways in which we can assist growth within our church. Um, and one of the ways I like to look at it is also how can we remove barriers to the gospel? How can we remove things that stop people from wanting to join our church and get involved with us on mission. But I think in many respects, a a summary verse, if you were looking for one, would be the one where Paul says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the increase. And that, I think, is really key as we look at this this whole subject. Um, We we need to seek to do our best as we lead our churches. We need to seek uh, to plant well or to water well, but ultimately it's God that gives the increase. And, uh, you know, when I look up and I hear... Uh, people who've been on the stage this week and you know and I listen to Joel and Amy and I'm incredibly moved with what they're doing in Turkey you know and then I listen to you know the stories in Thailand and and I listen to other stories you know where people you know the Jubilee story where you know they they renovated part of their building for the first five years and after five months they're already having to renovate the other part to put in and I think that in some respects there's huge joy in all of those particular stories Um, but in whatever the context I do think there are some practical things that we can learn so I'm going to give you lots of practical things from my own experience things that have worked for us things that have worked in our context and things that you can either take it or leave it you know or you might think well let me see apply I want this to be very um engaging so if you've got questions as we go along particularly questions of clarity I don't understand what you mean by that Stephen do just uh do just uh, pipe up and and uh, and let me know. Is that okay? Okay. So my first point, really, here. I mean, I've probably said it already, but you've got. This firstly, you in a seminar like this, you've got to actually be one to the importance of growing numerically. Um, is this something you want to do? Now, if part of you might just think, well, what a ridiculous question. Of course, I do. Um, but there are, there is, there can be in us, and I think I find different cultures react differently. I think, you know, and I think sometimes in a UK cult- culture, we often celebrate the smallness. We love the underdog, um, and you'll hear I hear so many of the Christians in the UK saying, "Oh, I don't want to belong to a league. I don't never want to belong to a big church." You know, I'm quite happy with my 60 people, and I know everybody. Um, other people in other cultures, um, it's just uh, it's a horrible thought to belong to a church of only 50 people. How exhausting is that? You know, so. I think you've got to be one to the fact um, that you want a church, um, to your church to grow numerically. Another way of looking at it is who doesn't want to be in a church which is not growing? Who would like to be in a church which looks exactly like it does now, 10 years from now? I mean, I don't think any of us do. Um, there are some objections, you know, big is not beautiful, which I did say. Some of we need to look at our attitudes to big churches. I grew up in the Brethren Assembly in the UK. So the Brethren Assembly was quite a strange and wonderful and interesting place to grow up to grow up as a child. Um, but the Brethren Assembly, uh, rea- I mean, th- a lot of what, they were a reformed group of people, but they, they despised almost, it seemed like, the large church. And so there was a little assembly in, in Suffolk where I grew up. There's an almost felt like an assembly in every village. Um, but there was no big Brethren Assembly. There was no, um, although they mobilized themselves a little bit around evangelism and a little bit around mission, everyone was very independent. They worked a little bit together. Um, but when the assemblies began to come under some kind of pressure, they didn't have some of those bigger churches that could help when the smaller churches were struggling. 
They didn't have a leadership factory that was helping to develop leaders. They didn't have something which was developing worship leaders. Some of the advantages of big churches are that they're a leadership factory. They produce more leaders, more worship leaders, more kids leaders. They produce greater finance to fund the mission. They increase our church planting options and they increase the profile in the city. More people have heard of them. And that certainly was our experience of God first is we got to a point where people had heard of them, not just Christian people. People had heard of us, particularly in the northern suburbs of Joburg. God first, oh yeah, that's that church. Uh, and people knew who we were and that increased our profile and therefore the opportunity. And so it's great. And we, and we as a church, when we were first being planted in Joburg, really benefited from the bigger churches who were able to sow us a full-time worship leader who were able to sow us a full-time youth pastor that we could actually start the church with. And so I think there's some great benefits um, to, uh, to bigger churches. But in Joburg at the moment, our big goal, which we believe that God has given us as a group of churches prophetically in advance, is 100 churches of 100. And that's what we've got our eyes on. Now, not next week but that's what we'd like to do. We want to be planting lots of missional communities, lots of churches around the city, and hopefully those hundreds of churches will have hundreds of people in them uh, eventually, but that's the kind of goal that we're looking at. I want to give some context in terms of our own story and then pull out some a few lessons from that. So as I said, we were planted in 20 2005 with 20 people. Um, and... Uh, we eventually started Sunday mornings once we'd kind of gathered a group of about 60. Um, but the first thing was that there were 20 people who got our values. I think what's really important is if we want to grow numerically, we need to lay very good foundations in. What are the foundations that we're building on? What are the foundations on which we are going to grow? If we don't get the foundations right, even if we grow rapidly, then the thing will begin to creak. And we spent a lot of time. Foundations are key to growing numerically. Spend time to build that initial team who get your values and build together, who are committed to growing and have a strategy, and committed to the strategy that you want to implement. Um, Second thing is we've just discovered uh, in the early church plant, for those of you who are thinking of planting churches, uh, names were vital. Uh, that 20 group of 20 people was our launch team. It wasn't our core team. It wasn't our leadership team. When it's the leadership team, they all expect to be leaders. And as the church begins to grow, not all of them will be. Um, if they're a core team, they think they kind of in the middle of everything and always need to be. But having a launch team, they did the task that they said that they would do. We worked really hard to get up to 100 people. Now, Tim Keller says in the early days of a church, he feels that a magic number for a church is 70 people. So he, he, he goes into great detail to say that when you launch, whether you launch with 10 or whether you launch with 50, getting it up to 70 people is quite key. In those initial phases, six months to a year, you have high energy, high enthusiasm, high commitment to what's going on. But if it's especially if you're, if you're in a rented venue, after about six months to a year, if you haven't got to 70, that initial core team will begin to get very tired and begin to lose, um, to lose some enthusiasm and some energy um, and it will begin to take its toll. Now, obviously, that's different in different kind of contexts, you know, and with what Joel and Amy are seeking to do. Um, they're not just going to race up to 70 people. Um, but this was, uh, this was Keller's experience of planting in and around the New York area. Next thing we learned is that venues are important in this debate, but they're not essential. Okay? Venues are important. And where you have a Sunday meeting and presence um, is, is, is important. We work so hard. We were very fortunate to plant a church in the city of Joburg with, with PJ full-time, myself full-time, Colin Vincent um, as a worship leader full-time, and Rachel, um, uh, Rachel Hooper, who was a trained youth pastor also from England full-time. Um, that was because two of us weren't taking a salary. Um, so we were able to have quite a high staff. And we, we started with those 60, um, and it took us a long while to add, even with that, to add up <coughs> towards 100. Um, 
and we were just giving it everything that we could give. Um, you know, PJ's leadership gift and, you know, my kind of implementer organization gift and the youth and, and worship. I mean, it would look like the dream team. But after, after six months in, we were barely added 20 people and we were finding it hard. And then we moved our venue. And we moved from a school hall um, in a fairly kind of quiet residential street um, to a community center on a very, very busy intersection in the suburb of Bryanston, right beside a primary school, which allowed us permanent signage. Now it was a small, th and we didn't do anything differently in that venue than the previous venue, but the visibility, the signage, everything else suddenly gave us attraction that we hadn't had before. And so often I think when we look at venues, we look at many different things. For us in that situation, that visibility was the key to us along with the permanent signage. <coughs> and we did well with it. Now your venue will, will lay a lot of stuff in. So your venue will often speak to you in terms of, <coughs> we'll often look at it and think, how does this help us as a church? You know, does it have good facilities for parking? Does it have good facilities for, um, for our children? Does it have good facilities for our worship? Does it have storage if it's a temporary venue? Those kind of things are actually quite other things we'll take into consideration. If, your thing, if one of the things you're taking into consideration is actually growth, then location is quite key. We were in that venue for a while and we'd gone to two morning services and we were gathering around 500 and we needed to move because it just couldn't cope. And the irony is that we rented a, a, a school after that that could seat 600 right beside the first venue that we'd been in, in that same road. And we went from there from, a, from 500 to well over 1,000. Um, but we had momentum with us. So that's why I say venue is important, but it's not vital. So we had venues in the same road. One, it just didn't work for us. We were small, we just couldn't get traction. By the time we had got some momentum, then we could go back to that venue and it did work for us. In the, that situation, the best venue for us was the third venue. It gave us brilliant underground storage for everything. It gave us any amount of classrooms, brilliant car parking. It was the best venue. But in the stage where we most needed to grow, it was not a good venue. And the one that did open up for us, and we looked at it at first, and the reason we didn't go for it was it was a, it was a building with 12 sides, and it had steps down into a pit. <coughs> and the steps were shallow that we couldn't, we couldn't put chairs on them. So we just couldn't see. We could, get, could we get everyone to sit on the floor, but it's pretty uncomfortable? And we'd looked at it, and we said, location is great. Until one day, Rachel, our youth worker, says, why don't we just saw the back legs off all the chairs? to exactly the right height so that they fit over to. And when we did the pilot, we did. So we had a great afternoon sawing the back legs off 200 chairs to make them fit. And it was the key for the church to, we often say, what is the success of God first? It was sawing legs off the backs of chairs, but to get us into a venue and a location that would work for us. Okay. So I want to move on to a bit more practical stuff now in terms of the hows in terms of growing churches numerically. Um, the first point is maximizing Sundays. And again, this can meet with some kind of resistance because people think, oh, are we just going to go now into a whole thing about production and show and event? And, and you know, is, it that, is that what it's going to be about? Well, we have a kind of a five-step process to maximizing growth through our Sundays because the reality is Sundays are vital. However you feel about it, I, don't, I have yet to meet a growing church that has really rubbish Sundays. You know, where you kind of go into the church and it's just awful. You know, your toenails are curling, your kids are unhappy, the coffee is dreadful, and it's exploding. It, it seldom happens, okay? Um, and even if somebody comes into the church via a community group, maybe via a quiz night, via an outreach, by a social justice process, they've still got to come through the front door of a Sunday if they're going to be part of the church. And the third thing is that people see Sundays quite often as a barometer to church life. 
and that's what they'll measure the temperature of the church is through a Sunday. So first, first step in maximizing Sundays is to maximize Sunday visitors. Few Sunday visitors will result in low growth or no growth. And I think this is, this is key. And this needs a whole nother strategy and possibly a whole nother afternoon seminar to look at how do we maximize Sunday visitors? How do we actually get people to come? Um, and it's something we've spent quite a lot of time as elders on. See, getting the early trickle of visitors is the hard part, but once this is happening, if the experience is good, the word of mouth will bring others. Visitor numbers is absolutely key. So you need to think about your venue, think about your advertising, you think how um, we are always want to, just on advertising, I just want to encourage us to always be authentic. Um, so that actually what people, what you're advertising is what people get. Um, that's quite important. Um, we found that multi-site assisted in this greatly. People heard about God first, and so they just kind of went online to try and find the nearest one to them. I talked about Midrand, and Midrand, uh, led by Jacques Adama, we when we planted them out, um, they could not have put on better Sundays. You know, I often go along to a church, and someone will say, hey, Stephen, you know, just... Tell us, what did you think? You know, I'll, I'll give them a list of really did wells and a couple of things that I would do differently that would help. I went along to Midrand and I couldn't find a do differently. It was just wonderful and yet there were no Sunday visitors. They were doing church well and as we sat down after three months as an eldership team with their, with their leaders, their core team, launch team, we said to them, guys, you know, we need to relook at this. And what we did was we went for an entirely different approach which is probably the approach we should have taken in the first place, and we went for an entirely incarnational approach. So we said to them, you know, we need, some of you guys have really got to move right into the community where your venue is, so that your, the, the wives are picking up kids from the school gate. We need, Jacques, you need to join the gym that's in the same row. Cancel your current gym membership and join that one. Get to know a community through there. You know, you need to, you need to, you need to work in a coffee shop just around the corner from the church. You know, work the same time each time. Get to know the other guys who are sitting there with their laptops and working. You need, you've got to take a much more incarnational approach to this. And then what they've begun to see is the church has grown. It's gone from the initial team of 40 up to 60. They've added another 18 people. But the exciting thing is that 10 of those people are first time, uh, they've crossed the line of faith. They're first time believers. And that's what's, that's what's been exciting about them. But the key for them is to get that trickle of, of Sunday visitors. And they needed to do that with a very different approach. I'm not going to be prescriptive of what your approach will be. Some of it will come down to the kind of church that you want to grow. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. <coughs> for, for us, um, we, we, get a, we get visitors and we try and track the visitors that we get. And this is quite helpful for us to look at what are the visitors who are coming through. And what we, what we did as we've researched it, we found that we've got people who are Christians who are new to Johannesburg and they're looking for a new church. Johannesburg is a very transient city. So they're new to the city and they're looking to find a church. Uh, then we've got Christians who are in the city and for whatever reason, they're also looking for a church. Um, we've got people who are, who are unsaved or people who haven't been in church for years. Maybe they, maybe they got saved in high school and whatever, but they've, they've, uh, they've backslid and they're not involved in a church. And then we've got people who are just in Joburg for a weekend visiting friends and family. So what we began to look at is those kind of visitors. And we filter out those people who are just in for the weekend um, and have just come to join. And we're looking at those other, those other percentages. And what we found was that actually when it comes to growth, our biggest growth has come from people who are Christians who have just arriving in Johannesburg and looking for a church. And actually about... Our growth, those early days of God first, came about 60% of our growth that described it. It was at a time where the economics of South Africa meant a lot of people were moving from coastal areas into the city, um, and, we, and they, were they were hearing of the church, they were recommended, and they came to join us. 
The second area of growth that we saw was actually people who had previously been in churches, had backslidden um, for whatever reason, were invited along to something and loved that expression and it was part of them beginning their journey of faith again. The third thing was the transfer of Christians from other churches and then fourthly, um, it was unsaved. And a couple of things that we, w we were wanting to do there is firstly to say where is our area of strength and how do we maximize on that? Are we comfortable with it? And our area of strength is people arriving in Johannesburg looking for church. And I think we did so well there is because we launched with a team of 20 people who arrived in Joburg. And so we knew what it's like to arrive in this huge city and not to have friends and not to have community. So we did really well with that. So we put huge amounts of effort into an area of strength. Because this was clearly something that, you know, that we were good at. So we said, how can we maximize that further? Um, the second thing we did is looked at where are we really weak, and that was in seeing, people sa seeing unsaved people coming to faith. And so we developed a strategy for that as well. So we have two very d clear strategies for seeing people uh, uh, coming to faith and for seeing people who are arriving in Joburg uh, joining church. Yes, Bones, you got a question? Uh, no, not because of time maybe, but I will if people ask. Okay, so um, uh, I, I mean, I, I, what I really want you to take away is the process of looking at the numbers, looking at the analysis, and then saying, let's play to strength and manage our weakness, um, which I think is a great philosophy to be uh, <coughs> generally in life. But um, for example, um, we were looking at what are some of the objections why people who are unsaved don't want to come to church, okay? And what can we deal with those? One of the things that we discovered was actually in a Joburg context is the reason that people didn't want to come to church is a very negative opinion that they would have of Christians. And so we started to put on a lot of events which had no particular gospel content but were just brilliant events. We do an annual amazing race around the city in cars um, you know, with roadblocks and pit stops. And I mean, it's just like you see on the, t on the TV. And uh, it's, a, it's a day. Um, and now it's got to the point where we open up the bookings for it and they're usually sold out in a couple of hours. Um, and, and about 80% of the people who come aren't Christians. Um, and so another one is our quiz night. We've just done our quiz night. You know, we're a church of... We've church about two, 200 adults, and we've just put about 450 people through this year's quiz night. Um, Joe and I have got friends who are not believers who we've invited to quiz night. Three of them now book their own tables with all their mates because they love. And there's a very much a sense of just helping them to see that, that, that church and Christian is a good place. And we always do as much as we can in our own venue just to help them. We maximize out on... Th on lifestyle things, so things like um, baby dedications, um, you know, even marriages will try and do something in church as well as their wedding um, so they can invite their friends and family to that. Baptisms, welcoming people into membership. Um, Terran dropped something into a, uh, into a meeting recently. They were thinking about a common ground, so we just stole it shamelessly in things like 25th wedding anniversaries you know, having a kind of a blessing in, in the service of, you know, just a few minutes. But, hey, guys, just invite, invite all your unsaved friends to come along. Um, trying to have a very clear strategy. So we have what we call first-touch events, like the Amazing Race, second-touch events, and third-touch events. And what we're doing with second-touch events is particularly around areas of, um, uh, of uh, parenting, of marriage, of... Um, single parents, uh, singleness. We're trying to put on events kind of outside of Sunday, but a little bit more than a first touch event. So we're beginning some teaching, some training, those kind of things that are involved. So we want to be able to put a stepped process through to the point where we can invite someone on a Sunday morning who isn't yet a believer. And what we have seen is that this is a slow process, um, but we are just beginning to start to see the fruit now. Um, of unbelievers coming more regularly on a Sunday morning. I think with a lot of this kind of stuff, you just want the pill or you want the exercise or you want the strategy that if I go home and implement it, will turn the thing around. 
it's a long it's a long game approach this one um to see um, unbelievers starting to come to church i'm going to move on for time um step two is um is maximizing the Sunday experience, okay? And we talk uh, in this about the big seven, and as elders, these are often the things that we will evaluate occasionally. Um, what is the general kind of atmosphere uh, in, you know, is the atmosphere one of welcome, of hospitality, of love, and of normality? We say to our, say to our members all the time, you know, guys, on Sunday, we are inviting people into our home. So therefore, that's got to be our priority. So it's really helpful if you're there before them. You know, get there ahead of them. There's nothing worse than, you know, you've got guests coming for dinner and they get there before you do. You know, it just wouldn't happen. It's the same with that. What is the atmosphere? I, w I always want to check in with people who visited. I'll phone them in the week and I say, how did you find us? How did you find the general atmosphere? And generally they'll say, just so loved it. It was so warm. It's so hospitable. And we, we encourage our members to into that. And Sunday morning is to prioritize visitors so that everyone's together on this with us. Um, I was so thrilled. Um, I took a three-month sabbatical a couple of years ago. Uh, during that time, a lady had joined our church, and she'd picked up this vibe. And uh, my first Sunday back, I came into the back of church, and she came up, strode up to me, held out her hand, and said, Hello, my name is Sally. Are you new here? Then I watched her horror as I stood up to preach. Um, <laughs> she just greeted the pastor I you knew here. But, but that, I, was I said to her after, I was just so thrilled that she'd already got that atmosphere of warmth and hospitality. Um, preaching, you know, we're obviously looking for excellent double impact preaching. Um, uh, same with kids, worship, leadership, facilities. Now, obviously, they just need to be reasonably comfortable in terms of seats, temperature, lighting, parking, toilets, signage, that kind of stuff, um, and, and reasonable media. Um, I, uh, I used to say excellent. Um, I've realized that that's not always possible. But what I do go for is consistent. I feel the biggest enemy of people inviting their friends to church is inconsistency. I just don't know what I'm going to get. You know, if, if, if this worship band is on, that's going to be great. But if, flip, if that worship band is on, I'm just, you know, my, oh, man, I hope it's not them. You know, or, you know, who, who's preaching this morning? You know, I, what I'm looking for is a consistency that no, people are not asking that question, you know. So maybe it's not Andrew Wilson in the pulpit, you know. And maybe it's not Ryan Marshall leading worship. We don't have that luxury. We are in a school hall which is an old cavernous school hall, and a Joburg winter is freezing, you know, and there's nothing I can do about that except buy 200 blankets, which we leave at the door. Um, so what we're doing, but we're looking for a consistency, that people have a confidence that, hey, it's going to be okay. Um, <coughs> all the time I'm asking for these seven things. Do they work for the believer? And do they work for the unbeliever? <coughs> yes. So what I'm saying is, it's what you're looking for is a leadership which is, is a kind of safe and, and consistent. You know what I mean? That it is not leaving people feeling insecure when they come. I'm looking, I, on a Sunday morning, I kind of, we're finally shameless in as much as we, we put our best guys on every week. Yeah, so I've like in hosting the ser service, for example, um, I've, got f I've got five elders. Um, AJ is one of those elders. Um, he can occasionally be a mouthful of marbles, um, uh, which he would first be at first. But when he steps up there and opens his mouth, everyone feels loved. Everyone feels fathered. Everyone feels safe. It's the gift that God has given him. And that, for me, means he's on probably eight out of ten Sundays. I use downtimes like the August holidays and the December holidays to train people. But generally, I kind of this is a big moment for us, and I want to have our best people up there um, leading um, because it's important for those who are coming and visitors, and there's a sense of consistency. You see, most people don't care less on their first visit about many of our values. 
They just want to find a church where they feel welcome, they meet with God, and their kids are happy. And let's be realistic. Most people, whether believers or not, will look for a church which offers the best of those seven. Or at least offers those seven in a comfortable or consistent way. Now, every time we do a new members course, I ask one question at the beginning. I say, let's go around and introduce yourself. Say my name, what I do for a living, and one thing I like about the church. We'll get to all the things you don't like later. One thing you like about the church. Now, part of that is just to be testing our, in terms of the things we're gunning for. Eight out of ten people say, I just felt at home. I just felt wanted. I just felt, oh, this is a good place. And they couldn't articulate. I think one person in the last five years has mentioned the preaching. And I think two people have mentioned the worship. Quite a few mentioned the kids. But actually, it's that this is a good place to be. And I think so we're, we're, you know, we've gone hard on the atmosphere. And I think, again, you kind of play to your strengths. Be consistent. Um, I think in our passion for mission, we can unwisely despise saved people joining our church. Uh, they are vital not just to get the church growing, but to look after the unsaved and the recently saved. But equally, in our passion for growth, that we can forget the lost. And it's a tension that we, must, we mustn't, uh, we mustn't uh, forget. I was really taken with Joel this morning. You know, just kind of, you know, we're really hoping to launch with a multi-team, you know. And in our group, we were praying for 10 Turkish believers to join the 10 that are there. And I think that's a really great kind of goal and tension that we want to see saved people join us and we want to see unsaved people join us. And that will really strengthen us as a church. I think the leader's role is vital. You see, for most people considering joining the church, the single most important thing they want to settle is who are the leaders and can I follow them? And so, they, you know, your leadership needs to be visible. Um, the leaders will also have a considerably more gifting than the other leaders to gather and add people. And they've got that God-given shepherd role. And so my elders, again, on a Sunday, prioritize visitors. So we have a visitor's reception area. And I, if you're preaching or anchoring, hosting the meeting, then after the meeting, you're, you go to the visitor area. You don't pray for people. You don't minister to people afterwards. You're not caught up with other membership things that are going on. You leave there and you go to the visitor's area. And the church understands that. And when a visitor comes and they're greeted by the guy who was preaching and the guy who was leading, it makes a significant impact upon them in terms of they want to join. And for everyone who does visit, they fill out an information card and I will phone them during the week. And I've already met them, so I have a point of contact with them. And so for us, that is our priority if we want to grow the church numerically. So the, the church members know if they want me some time with me or they want to, they'll wait until I've met with the visitors and then they'll come and grab me afterwards. That's our decision to do that, yes. So I have a prayer ministry team of people who I would respect. So if there's ministry and things that need to be done, one of the elders will just oversee that taking place. But I have gifted people who will do that. But I, I, I feel like one of the responsibilities as an elder in terms of guarding the church is to know who's coming in and who's not. And to quote Andrew Wilson, to see who are the sheep and who are the wolves. And so I, I make sure that I'm right at the forefront of our visitor process um, uh, and generally I'll know everyone who's joining us. That's the way we've done it. I'm not being prescriptive. Okay. So we use our leaders a great deal on a Sunday. Okay, the third step is, to me is the membership process. How do we move visitors into members? Um, and for many churches I come across, this isn't something which they can necessarily articulate clearly what is the process involved and what is the track in which you move people from visitors to members? Okay. At God First Four Ways, 40% of first-time visitors have become members within six to eight weeks of their first visit. Now that's a goal that we've set ourselves and one that we kind of consistently meet. Um, 
Because what we find is that generally, if somebody moves quickly in that particular process, gets involved in a community group, gets involved in a serving team, they're absorbed into the life of the church, they join very quickly. Now, it's not about the it's not about the actual becoming a member, but it's actually about being joined to us. And so we want that process. Now, we don't push people. Some people do take considerably longer to do that. But we want to give people the opportunity to move quickly through that process. Our whole emphasis as a church is to get people to our membership information evening, which we call Get Connected. And because that's the thing, so when someone visits, again, the people in our church will know Everyone's goal is to get someone to the Get Connected evening. <coughs> so that means we have to run one minimally every four weeks. So we have smaller evenings, but every four weeks. So that anyone visiting our church has to wait a maximum of three weeks to the next Get Connected. So we run those events. Now, why do we do that? Well, firstly, is because... At Get Connected, we are able to talk about exactly who we are, what we believe, what our values are, and how you can be involved. And so there's no kind of surprises. There's no kind of six months, well, I didn't know you believed that, or I didn't get that about you. We're kind of clear up front, and, and guys can come along. They then have the opportunity to take that membership process forward if they want to. They fill in the information form, and then what will happen is I will have a cup of coffee with every person who comes on that, um, between that one and the next one. Um, and so uh, that will take that process on. And from then I can help find the right small groups for them, I can find the right serving teams for them, I'll connect them to other people in the church. Now obviously if the church were to double in size to 500, uh, that process will need to be reviewed, and I can't do that on my own. But for the size that we are now, we're adding between 10 and 20 people a month it's just about, it's just about doable. But that means that very early on, there's lots of connection with leadership and lots of connection, connecting people to other people in church. Yes, Chris. Yeah, so I mean, on the information form, we have, um, when can you meet? You know, kind of breakfast, daytime, lunchtime, after work, evenings, weekends, you know, so they fill that kind of thing in. So then I'll, the ones that can be done in office hours and things, I'll just book them quickly. And the ones that need evenings or weekends, then I will, um, I'll do diary time with my wife to make sure that, you know. And sometimes it will take three or four weeks before I can get to have coffee with someone. But generally people understand that. Um, breakfast is a big culture in, in South Africa. So I do most of them at like 7 a.m. before work, a breakfast hour. And, I'll tr and I do a lot of traveling around the city. I also love, wherever possible, when men are joining us, to actually have that meeting in their workplace. Um, you get to know a man when you go to his place of work and meet some of his colleagues, and that's also a great opportunity um, you know, for the gospel as well. So there was another hand. No, th the other reason is that, you see, we can lay all the expectations down in terms of how things work right up front. So this is how we do it as a church. You know, you're going to go in this. This is how our pastoral care works. This is how our serving teams work. This is how our communities work. This is where you go if you're in trouble. We can do a lot of those kind of things um, very much up front. It does allow me to find spot gifting, however, um, in, in particular guys coming in or guys who I think, you know, I'd like to get them into a discipleship group or, you know, it just... It w this is a system that particularly works for me, but it is a system that all of the God First churches are are adopting. It's been from day one. JD. No, it's class and coffee. And then if we're happy, then we will bring them to membership. But part of that process is we run the Gospel Revolution, which is written by PJ. It's five or six weeks on the Gospel um, via DVD and small group. And so each of them go into that process as well. But we will bring them into membership before they've done that. But we do ask that each of them do that. So there is a certain degree of... But I don't run the Gospel Rev. Um, I wouldn't have the capacity for that as well. 
Uh, this was something we did at Godfest before we went multi-site. I think the biggest evening we had was 92 people. Um, and, but there was PJ, myself, and Greg on the follow-up follow coffees. But we've always resisted delegating those follow-up coffees to anyone who's not on eldership. No, we felt there was something that was missing. We just felt like it was so key to our theological. Um, initially, we didn't see many people kind of joining us from other kind of from churches maybe who were not, you know, reformed, gospel-centered, charismatic. But then we started to see lots of people from various other uh, backgrounds joining us or new more new believers or returning believers. And we just wanted them grounded in the gospel right up front. So... So we generally, what we'll do is um, uh, as soon as they'll come out of Get Connected, they'll join a gospel revolution, then we'll, refer we'll put them into a community group. Now, they might finish the gospel rev first and then join the community group, but we have three expressions of membership. If you're part of the God First family, then what we expect is that you'll serve once a month in a serving team, you'll be in a community group, and you'll and you'll be giving to the church. Now, they're the only expectations we put on, um, but everyone knows that again up front. So actually, we've got a church where uh, currently about 97% of our membership are on a serving team once a month, um, but they kind of get that up front, you know, because again, that's another benefit for me of having the Get Connected and everything funneling into Get Connected. So rather than how did you join the church, well, I joined this life group, and then I joined this, and then I did that, and then kind of six months later, I did the course, and it, it's quite a, for us, it's quite a very defined process. Um, what I'm encouraging you to do is to have a clear process of how you're going to see people added. It, can be, it doesn't have to be ours. Um, okay, step number four is that, I mean, I've covered it in many respects, it's then the maximizing on the integration into church life. And I think sometimes churches are good with Sunday visitors and experience and there's a membership process, but they do the membership process, but they never quite integrate into church life. You know, they never quite build the communities, they never build the relationships. I think the bigger the church gets, this is the bigger the danger. You know, it's very... It's quite hard not to integrate into church life if your church is 50 or 60 people. Um, if your church is 400, it's very easy to have that kind of slip in, slip out consumer approach. And so the, the membership process or the integration process then becomes quite important for us as well. Um, and that takes another level of leadership. So that's involving like, okay, I'll have a coffee with somebody. First thing I'll do after that coffee is send the mail to the life group leader to the serving team leader and to the individual I've just met with, connecting the dots and making sure, and then making sure there's processes to say, has this person joined the Set Epic and Pack Down team? Is this person attending a life group? What are those kind of processes? Now the process is if someone steps down from a particular team or isn't attending a life group, what are those processes? And we've, I haven't got time to go into them now, but we do have processes for all of those kind of things. Uh, not because we feel like the job needs to get done, or because we're somehow in, a, in some way controlling. What we've seen is, I, I would say, we did a bit of an audit at an elder couple's evening recently, and we put up on the board, um, I said, guys, can we just talk about some of the big pastoral issues we're dealing with in church? You know, what marriages are under pressure? You know, who, who, who's, and we put them all up on a board, and I put them in two columns. And the guys were saying, you know, the guys were trying to work out, I think, what, why there were two columns. And at the end of it, column A had eight people and column B only had one. And I said, the eight people here aren't attending a small group. The one is. And what we're seeing is that most of the time we get ending up on big pastoral issues of people who have dropped out of a community group or they've dropped out of a serving team on a Sunday. They're there to help people grow in their faith, to be cared for and to be discipled. And generally by the time a big problem occurs in a marriage or whatever, 
it's got to the point of desperation that they need to see me and Joe, um, which if they'd been in a community group may well have not, we may not have got to that. And so that's why for us, this integration process is so important, and not in just in adding churches, um, but helping them, uh, which really helps us to the final thing, which is close the back door. Um, you can see churches who are adding 40 people a month, but actually their net growth is only 10 because 30 are out the other end. Um, maybe they come in with great expectations, and then after six months, those expectations are not realized and they begin to drift away. And so that integration process that I talked about can really help to close the back door. So... Um, <coughs> So, yes, so um, as I speak, it does sound like we're a little bit over the top on things. But, for example, um, my kids' team, um, once a month, they, so they do a register on a Sunday morning um, of all the kids who are there. That's just a child protection thing. Um, but then what the one, one of the, what the, the kids' administrator will just go through, and if she sees a kid who hasn't attended for four weeks, she'll just bung me a mail. I say, we haven't, see, we haven't seen the former kids for four weeks. I'm just letting you know. We haven't seen the simple kids for six weeks. Is everything okay? And that just helps me. And I'll think, okay, foremost, what community group are they in? I'll bung an email to their, to their community group leader saying, can you just tell me how Mike and Kerry are doing? Haven't been in church for four weeks. So there's lots of those little flags that are around that will just help us to check in and um, to see if everything's okay. Eric. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. So a, a, a lot of the answer to that will be what is the issue? You know, so um, commonly what we get is, oh, it's okay. It's just life in Joburg. Do you know what I mean? It's just we had to dedication here and we were tired here and... You know, there's still there's still some discipleship that needs to take place, um, but they're receptive to it. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes you pick up an offence has been taken. Someone said something in life group and they've not recovered or whatever. Then we'll try and deal with that. Um, it depends on the issue. Um, some people will leave, and I think we have to realise that. You know, and uh, we don't get into long and protracted negotiations. If we've got things we need to apologize for, we're quick to do it. If there's things that we can do better, we'll learn from it. But equally, we don't want to be, you know, pandering necessarily. I love Brian Barr this morning, you know, where he's kind of like, what has God called you to? You know, you kind of keep the faith. Sometimes you turn around and you see this sea of faithless people behind you and you can cower back to try and keep them all happy. Or you can, there will be one or two people who you just, you, you realize you can't, can't keep happy. You do your absolute best. Um, okay, Gr Rai? Okay, okay. So uh, I agree. It's slightly off point. Um, <laughs> um, so firstly, it came out of a prophetic word that was given by um, actually city to city. Um, so it was in it was in Cape Town. Um, all the Cape Town pastors were there. Terran Williams asked the question: um, If you wanted to transform Cape Town, what would you do? And his answer was: I'd plant a hundred churches of a hundred people in Johannesburg. Because Johannesburg is the center of South Africa in terms of culture, in terms of finance, in terms of population, everything. You change Joburg, you change Southern Africa. 
Um, and so he was, he was kind of making that point. But as he did, it kind of, Steve and Ryan kind of brought that to us in a really encouraging way. So what we're saying was we want to plant 100 churches of 100 people, which will become churches of 250. We're not saying 100 is our limit. We equally want to say, you know, we don't want church, you know, 100 churches of 20 people. You know, we want to we want to get Midran to 100 as soon as we possibly can um, to make it sustainable. We've got bigger churches that are funding us. At the moment, financially, we're doing, we're doing great. And Midrand is already now financially viable um, in terms of what they're doing. But that is... No, no, it doesn't come out of ideal church size. It comes out of the prophetic word. Yeah, we want to get to that, that become hundreds of churches of hundreds of people. So we've kind of added that on almost. So 100 churches of 100 people planted, which become hundreds of churches of hundreds of people. So uh, that requires a church growth strategy. Um, we don't want to just kind of multiply into smallness. Um, um, and we don't want to kind of multiply for the sake of it. We obviously want sustainable churches. What we're doing as a hub of leaders now is each time we meet, we're working through what does that strategy look like? How we will we finance that? How will we sustain that? And what does it look like? What does the next three steps look like? And the next three steps are a plant into Daverton Township, a plant into South Joburg, um, and possibly another one in the Parks area. So, JD? Yeah. So in the early days of a church plant, when you're small, too much process and administration will kill you. Mm. It will stifle. Um, once you get around 150 upwards, that's where that's that first ceiling, JD. Generally, churches will get up to about 150 and then they'll stop growing. And that's because there's not enough process and there's not enough administration. So it's all been done very organically, very relationally, pastor knows everyone. Statistically, it's said that, you, that most people can only have a meaningful relationship with 70 people in a church. Once you get past 70, you just can't know everyone, okay? So anything up to 70 needs very little process. 70 to 150, you need to start putting in. Once you get to 150, if you haven't got processes and systems in place, then actually you're gonna probably sit at 150. Once you're through that, 150 to 300 is your next growth. Now, 97% of churches worldwide never break through 300. And a lot of that is because of the way they're being led and the capacity of the lead guy. Now, at 300, the lead guy needs to stop leading from amongst and leading ahead of. And that, therefore, requires staffing, and that requires people that they can really implement and push people to. A lot of the processes that I'm talking to you about suit us at 200, but if I get to 300, I'm going to need to radically overhaul them and work in a very different way, and I'm going to need somebody beside me who can run a many of those kind of processes, and I'm going to have to lead in a very different way. Now, I'm very relational, <coughs> um, and so... You know, the question, one of the questions that I've asked is actually, am I suited to lead a church past 300? And I have to ask, the qu I have to seriously wonder whether I am. Um, uh, or whether actually I would, you know, I'm better to, I know that my sweet spot is taking 70 people and pushing them up to 250. Um, and it might be that I'm doing one of those plants because I get somebody whose who's particular gift is taking a church from 300 to 500 because it's more complex or more it's you know you need other people to be more relational than you and that's the next push past the 300 once you get from there again i think it looks at gift size and and at gifts leadership gift size it looks at the, the city that you're in uh, and the culture that you're in and it looks at the um uh what's the word um the type of church you want to grow and that's why multi-site has become so so popular is for churches that kind of leadership capacity is, is great. They can produce leaders that can lead churches of 250 up. Then actually to put out multi-site churches of that size, but keep the oneness so you've got shared resources and shared finances is very, very economical um, because it would suggest that three only 3% three of church leaders in the world have the ability to take a church past 300. 
that are helpful. There's a whole load of within the culture. You know, I think when you're in a church of 150 or less, everyone feels that they should have direct access to the pastor and probably should have direct access to the pastor because there's probably no other full-time staff other than maybe kids or, you know, admin. Um, once you get past that, you've got to reshape it. All roads can't lead to the pastor. You know, all roads have to lead to other things. You've got to raise other levels of leaders. You've got to, you've, you've got to change sometimes even the whole philosophy of the way you do church. Stephen Covey always says, start with the end in mind. You know, so if you're JD and you've just launched out with a huge group of people, um, he could start with that end in mind because you started with how many? We, we launched at a hundred and thirty launch, but that's going to grow quite quickly. He can already start with the end in mind of, hey, we're going to be a church of 500, so let me lead like that from the start. You know, changing people's expectations. I'm still amazed how everyone feels. When a guy in our church, um, his mother died suddenly. Dad needs an awful lot of care. I was on holiday when I heard about it. I phoned one of my elders. I said, please check in with him. Please make sure everything's okay. Um, life group put on meals. Someone else organized the funeral. Someone else, and the else elder checked in every day. And then the message came through. We've been very disappointed that Stephen didn't reach out to us. And there still can be that. And so those are some of the cultures that just have to be changed. I'm going to stop questions just for a minute because our time is gone. Um, and I've only done the first point. Um, the second thing was maximizing leadership. Um, and, and the point here for us is, what is the strengths of the of the lead guy and to try and build around some of those particular strengths and um, what are y what are they good at um so this is something we did at god at god first i i i'm i'm increasingly saying we do not want well-rounded leaders we want sharp-edged leaders in well-rounded teams um, and sometimes leaders try and be all things to all men and that's where we get wrong we want sharp-edged leaders with well-rounded teams where leaders are playing to their strengths and their weaknesses are being managed. So um, the five competencies in leadership are these, their vision, decision-making, organization and management, motivation and equipping, and communication. So this was about three years into God First. We surveyed PJ and this was his kind of, this was his kind of graph at the time. So what you've got here is, you know, nine and a half out of ten for vision you know he's all vision this is your basic competence here when it came to organization and management pj says to me hey stephen would you would you coach me because i really want to hit competence in organization and management so kind of behind the scenes i coached him and he hit the six the problem was his vision came down to seven his decision making was about five because all of his emotional energy was going into doing something he wasn't so what we actually did was we said let's take those four away and give them to me, and then those four will get added elsewhere, and we'll see an even greater and sharper PJ, and I'll do the organization and management of the thing where I'm sharp, and I don't have to worry about the vision side of things, and we got to a point where PJ would have 12 new ideas at breakfast, and I'd have 12 projects running at supper time, and that was the strength out of which we grew, and so a lot of it is what are the strengths of the leader? Let's make sure we play to those gifts and release him from other things now the danger can be is like you're building a ministry around a man okay so in the early days pj's preaching gift was so huge we made a decision he would only take five appointments outside of god first in the first three years so he got hundreds of invitations to come and speak he would say yes to five he'd have five sundays off for his family and the rest he would preach now did it develop other preachers in the early days no after three years, with the momentum that we had, we began to develop other preachers, we began to develop other speakers. But it was important at that particular time that we were going to grow this church and get it established. We play to our strengths, we put our best team on, and we manage our weaknesses. And I think that's something important to remember. It's not, you're not committing to do that forever, but it's important that you play to those strengths at the beginning. Um, and then, okay, 
Then the third thing, just quickly, is graces. What is the grace on you for a church? And this is something which is important to us. So if you look at the church of Macedonia, it was commended for its giving and generosity. You look at the church in Corinth, it was known for the Holy Spirit, maybe a bit too much. Antioch was known as a sending church. God first four ways, what is it known as? It's known as hospitality and welcome, and it's known for its families. So we have a church, as I've said, about two, 250 adults, but 220 children of which 50% are preschoolers. So I've got 110 preschoolers in our church. Now, that's a grace upon us. And you could throw your hands up in the air and think, what a horrible, hideous thought that is. Or you can play to that strength, and we do. So we, you know, we've effectively now got a lady who does, a couple who do preparation for parenting, and then for the first three months support brand new mums in their homes, almost as a traditional health visitor, going around, checking they're okay, helping them with feeding, helping them with sleep, helping them just to adjust to being parents. People in Joburg don't have grandparents because it's a transient city. So what we've done is we've played to that strength. People have joined our, they've joined our church on the basis of getting into our prep to parenting courses because of the support that we can give. What are the graces on you? Let's pray, play to those effects. When we launched um, God First, four ways, um, this is kind of Joburg up here. These were the sites that we had and God First City was here and they lost their venue and they moved here. And then we opened Monty that was here. So we've got the big city of Joburg and we've got three churches on the same road divided by only four kilometers. And everyone said, that's never going to work. One will cannibalize the other. And what we saw was that Monty was full of 18 to 25-year-olds. And Fourways was full of young families. We call it the Starbucks effect. Starbucks opened a, a coffee shop in Seattle and then they opened a second one on the same road directly opposite and they said, this can never survive. And they looked identical. And that six months in, on the left-hand side of the road were businessmen with their laptops. And on the right-hand side of the road were mums with their, mums with their, uh, with their babies. And no one had designed that. It just kind of happened. And so uh, we, that's about churches playing, to, the, playing to, the, to the strengths and the graces that God's put on. Listen, we're afraid of them. And I'm going to stop there without getting to the rest.